I'd say generally buyers are all the same, but at the same time, they're all different. So everyone wants to buy a successful business that will do well. But if you showed a hundred people exactly the same business and on paper, that's a good business, you're going to get 30 people that hate it, 30 people that love it, 40 people who are somewhat indifferent and everyone will spot different things. And welcome back to SaaS Half Full, the only show serving B2B SaaS marketers. I'm Lindsay Groper, president of Blast Media. And as always, I will be both your host and bartender today. I sat down with Thomas Smale, who is the CEO and founder of FE International. They are an M&A advisor specializing in SaaS, and we thought it would make a really great conversation to talk about what buyers look for in SaaS companies. And on the flip side, when you know you're ready to sell as a SaaS founder. So grab a drink and join me as I speak with Thomas from FE International. Hey, Thomas, welcome to Stats Half Full. Hey, Lindsay, thanks for very much for inviting me on. Absolutely. I'm glad that you're joining me. We did send you a cocktail kit, yes? I do have my cocktail. I love it. I appreciate you. It's a Monday. So for those of you listening, you might be cringing right now that yes, yes, we are coming off of a weekend and we are drinking on a Monday. I am drinking a Topo Chico. I don't even know what I grabbed out of the office fridge. Tangy lemon lime Topo Chico. So that is what I'm going to be cracking today. What are you going with? A slightly watered down old fashioned. Okay, that works though. Appreciate that. Thomas is joining us from San Francisco Bay Area, though you do not sound like someone who was born in California. Where I, were you born? I like to pretend I was, but no, I'm from the UK originally. I moved out to the US six years ago with the business. All right. Did FE International, is that what brought you here or did you start that after? We started in 2010 in the UK. We moved in two stages between 2014 and 2016, primarily because a lot of our team are here. The vast majority of our team now are over in San Francisco, our New York office or our Miami office, and also just a lot of clients in the space. I think over 50% of our clients are based in US or Canada. That makes sense. Thomas, you and I today are talking about something very, very interesting right now, even from when we probably scheduled the interview to where we are right now, um, which is... Uh, how to increase the value of your SaaS business if you're looking to exit through acquisition. And we'll also cover the other side of the coin as well in terms of what to look for if you are looking to acquire a company. But that that landscape has changed. If we had this conversation last year or having this conversation right now, there's been quite a change. But before we dive in, I want to give our listeners who are primarily SaaS marketers, we do have some SaaS founders on here, but of SaaS companies of all shapes and sizes. So we do have some more startup companies all the way to publicly traded, everything in between. But want to give them an understanding of who you are as a person and as a guest, and also what FE International does. So you gave us why you moved to the US from the UK, but what was your interest in M&A? How did you get involved in this space? Sure. So if you go back to 2010, when I started the company, for those of you who are in the SaaS industry then, SaaS wasn't really a thing in 2010. Some of those companies existed, but I think most people would call it software. A lot of people back then would have paid for like desktop software. A lot of it would have been structured as like a one-time license. The kind of more common that you see now with SaaS is recurring monthly subscription or annual subscription if it's enterprise and cloud-based. You know, no one really downloads anything to their desktop anymore or anything like, like that. 
So if you go back to 2010, SaaS didn't really exist. And if you had a SaaS business and you wanted to sell it, there wasn't a specialized M&A firm that could help you. If you had a billion dollar business, you could call one of the really big investment banks. So you could call Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan. They would figure out a way to help you, but you didn't really have any options of specialists. You would have had to either figure it out yourself or work with a business broker or an M&A firm, depending on the size of your business and hope they could figure out how to sell your company. Back then, 2010, I was at college. I just graduated that year, buying and selling very small websites for myself. Uh, so we're talking $100, sell it at the end of the month for 500, pay off the credit card bill, rinse and repeat. So I was doing that to pay my rent through the end of college and the year I graduated. I wrote a book and a course in 2010 about how to buy and sell websites. And back then it was the concepts I learned, literally buying things for a few hundred, selling them for a little bit more. What happened for that course? Like, fortunately, it did quite well. It was quite successful, kind of like beginner's luck on a course launch. Didn't really know what I was doing, but it was popular. I think primarily because there was no real content back then about buying or selling online businesses. So SaaS companies, software companies, e-commerce companies, blogs. There's a real range of businesses we help represent today. And back then you would have just generically called it online businesses. I launched that. That did quite well. What I thought would happen is my entire business would essentially just be coaching or like teaching people how to sell businesses themselves. What happened, and this is where I kind of accidentally fell into M&A, is people would read the book and they say, hey, Thomas, this is great. I actually own a software company. Can you help me sell it? And being a student who had literally just graduated and need money to pay rent, food, office, all of those kind of things, I thought it's a pretty good way of doing it because I still use all the concepts I knew how to sell a business, but I didn't need any money up front. All I had to do was help someone sell, and then they would pay me if the business sold. So I started doing that in 2010, spent the next couple of years between 2010 and 2012 in the very early days of FE International doing mostly that. And then 2012 onwards, been pretty much 100% pivoted to just M&A. So 100% of the business is helping people sell their business. We do also do a little bit of buying. So my business partner and I probably buy one or two businesses a year, which have progressively been getting bigger as the company's got bigger. We're fortunate that kind of as we've made more profit, we can reinvest more into buying ourselves as well. So we've been on both sides of the table, but the vast majority of the business helping people sell. Over the last 12 years, we've done over 1,200 closed transactions for clients, well over a billion dollars in total transaction volume, and very much compounded from day one of figuring out how to sell and then just applying that to bigger and bigger deals. The concepts you learn doing a deal for $10,000 can be applied on a million dollar deal and a million dollar deal. You can apply it on a $10 million deal, $100 million deal. And it really just keeps going up from there. Do you remember the first website you sold? I do. For somebody else, it was a very small, kind of like almost like a marketing agency. He was like selling people ways to get more traffic to their website. And I believe I sold it for $18,000. And I think he paid me 10%, so $1,800, which back then was... I thought I was like the richest person in the world. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, you are paying was, for drinks that night. You are living that, large. That, yeah, that was back then. At least I would pay like a couple of months of rent in my London apartment. Sure. We opened our first office. The first big deal we did was $300,000, which we did in March 2011. 
So 10 months after the company officially was founded in May 2010, we made $30,000 in commission. And we used about half of that to open an office and hire our first two people. One of them still works for us today. So very much kind of tried to reinvest back in early. Awesome. Well, before we dive into sort of more of the actionables, how-tos, et cetera, how would you classify the state of M&A right now, today? We're sitting at Monday, December 12th. Give me some adjectives that describe the M&A environment right now in SAS. So I think it depends. So I'll start with a caveat and I'll give you some adjectives. So firstly, it depends quite significantly what size of business you're talking about. If you're talking about large public companies, there's definitely been a correction over the last 12 months, or probably more really the last six months, where public markets are no longer willing to pay the relative premiums that were being paid before. And that same goes for late stage startups. So those might be the kind of the unicorns with billion dollar valuations or companies that were previously raising at a 500 million valuation are now raising at a 200 million valuation. Where we've always operated is primarily self-funded, cash flow positive companies. And the opportunity that we saw kind of 12 years ago, and it's still really the case today, is those businesses trade for significantly lower multiples than public companies trade for. So you might be able to buy you know, a good profitable SaaS company for six times annual earnings. Whereas if you look at public companies six months ago, you might've had to pay 50 times annual earnings. So there's been a pretty significant difference in valuations all along. So all that's really happened is public valuations, large company valuations have come down. Valuations for the kind of deals we work on have actually remained quite steady. If anything, valuations will slightly grow this year. Those businesses, I guess, are becoming better and better value. More and more people are recognizing them for like the opportunities they have. And in the current market, buyers are more conscious about profitability. And we've always just represented profitable companies. So demand has been relatively steady. So if previously you had a company that was growing, burning cash, you relied on funding to keep growing consistently. If you have a self-funded company, which is kind of profitable and growing with its own cash flow, then you're not really affected by market conditions because you can continue to afford to grow with the money you're already making. So they've always been the clients we worked with. Demand has been relatively steady this year. Deals have been steady. Year on year, we're going to be up in terms of total transactions, total transaction size, average transaction size. Everything's going in the right direction. We made this bet 12 years ago that this market would grow and it takes a recession for that to be reiterated that it was a good plan from the start. Absolutely. That is the one word that I underscored was, you say cash flow positive companies, that that's always been your model, which is to your point, not not other investment models, but though that has this year proven to be now where most investors are interested, most buyers are interested. So not these crazy high growth, but profitable companies, which unfortunately is why we're seeing so many layoffs in the SaaS industry right now. And Thomas, I also have to say that I lived and existed in the world where software, enterprise software is being sold on disks. We've always represented, so Blast Media was founded in 2005. 
And we've always represented enterprise software companies. And at the time, our clients, we were shipping disks on their behalf to editors. So I too have lived in that world and remember a time way back when, when that software was bought and sold. So good. So we can talk about your business contextually that that hasn't changed so much here over the last year or so. So your answers really can be what you've learned over time and not so much as it relates to any major changes that have happened in the market. I want to talk about both from the perspective of companies that are looking to exit through acquisition, as well as those looking to grow through acquisition. Let's start on the buyer side, all things considered equal. So let's say I'm looking to acquire a specific type of technology company. Revenue is relatively the same. They're profitable, relatively same size of customer base. What makes one company stand out over another to a potential buyer? So it will depend. I'd say generally buyers are all the same, but at the same time, they're all different. Everyone wants to buy a successful business that will do well. But if you showed a hundred people exactly the same business and on paper, that's a good business, you're going to get 30 people that hate it, 30 people that love it, 40 people who are somewhat indifferent and everyone will spot different things and also objectively the same thing to one person will be a good thing to another will be a bad thing so it might be the founder let's say the founder is Lindsay. Lindsay's built a fantastic personal brand and people love the business and they're following it to some buyers that might be a great thing because they're like wow this business has a great reputation everyone loves the founder i really want to buy her business to another buyer they'll say wow this business is terrible it's completely reliant on Lindsay, if I buy this business and Lindsay leaves and the business is going to fall apart. Part of the art of good M&A is reaching out to as many buyers as possible, because if you just go to a very small group, you might get some opinions you don't like in one direction or the other. And there's almost nothing, at least in my experience, you can do to persuade someone that their initial opinion or initial judgment is wrong. So we really just focus on volume. But objectively, there's not really anything that makes one company better than another. It's really very subjective because some people, for example, say like, what's the most important SaaS metric, which is quite a common question I get asked when I'm speaking at events or on podcasts, I'll usually say revenue churn. So let's say you have a monthly revenue churn of 2%. Arbitrarily, most people would say 2% is a good revenue churn number. Some companies will look at that and say, oh no, we have a portfolio and if you have anything worse than net negative revenue churn. So your expansion revenue and downgrades are not kind of outweighing companies leaving. They'll say that's a bad thing. Other people look at it and be like, wow, that's a fantastic metric. Other companies we've seen are at 10%. So there are metrics like that, which some people see as good and bad. Some people also see, let's say we argue that 2% is good. Some people say, I don't want to buy that business because 2% is already good. How do I improve it? I want to buy a company at 10 and improve it to two. So it really depends. There's not a right or wrong answer as a buyer. Everyone has their own opinion. A lot of it's like quite subjective. Things you wouldn't necessarily, if you did a fact sheet of 10 things about this business and compared it to three others, and they all had a fact sheet, they could all be, those 10 things could be basically exactly the same for each. They could all have the same LTV, same ARPU, same churn numbers, same team size, same location same industry. So the 10 things could all be exactly the same. And the thing that differentiates them is something that 
you wouldn't necessarily recognize in that initial list. So it's very hard to give a definitive answer because everyone looks at it differently. And that that's often the opportunity. Right. We often sell companies. And it's something I have to remind my team of all the time, particularly younger team where they're learning to do M&A. Like if you're selling one business, our job is not to find a hundred buyers who agree that the business is fantastic and the valuation we're trying to get for the company is like correct or something they're happy to pay or agree they think it's good value. We're just trying to find one person or usually one company that believes that valuation is correct right. or that will bid the most. So for selling a company for $50 million, we don't want 50 companies to offer $50 million because that probably implies we've underpriced it. We sure. want to find the company willing to pay us 60. That really believes in it. Exactly. You had mentioned CEO or founder visibility. What is your opinion on the importance of that? So I think I've changed my opinion on this a bit over the years. So if you ask me, when I was younger and a bit more naive, I very much had kind of the, what's the textbook way of doing things? What should the exit plan say? And most people would say it's better for the founder not really to be that involved in the business, keep yourself out of it, remove key man or key woman risk. And for that not to be a problem, I think it does depend a little bit on the size of your business. So within my company, for example, I spent many years trying to remove myself. I was like, no, bad idea. Never going to be able to sell the business, never going to be able to leave. I think the reality is once we got to eight figures of revenue and we're kind of across everything we manage today, we're nearing nine figures in revenue and 150 people. It's basically impossible to remove myself entirely all that's really happened is we'll probably get to the stage where what i get paid we could hire a ceo externally to come in and replace me because i'm paid market value when you're early stage in your business that's probably not the reality you'll spend at least the majority of founders i know you spend many many years being not necessarily the worst paid person in the company but you're very unlikely to be the best paid person in the business so i think as you grow if you want to get to a certain size say eight figures or above, it's pretty much essential that you have a founder or multiple founders who at least have a little bit of a brand. Like I'm not really a marketing expert, but I think most people would agree people buy from people, not from companies. Mm -hmm. So if you look at any, if you're active on social media, at least we've tested if we're on Twitter, for example, and it's Effie International or Thomas talking about something, I will get a thousand times the engagement that the company will get by talking about exactly the same thing. So I think particularly in today's world of more visibility, social media, again, you and I, when we were talking about sending up discs. So I remember for our first course, we did literally post you a disc if you bought the course right. and you could put it in and you could watch the, I think videos that you could watch on the CD that you got posted. But back then social media was beginning to be a thing. Like it was like MySpace. People had started using Facebook. There were some other networks out there. But now every company has to be on social media. It doesn't matter if you're big, small, any industry, it's absolutely essential. I think if you want to be successful on social media, you need to have a founder who is the face of the business. So I think my opinion has changed to answer your question in short, in that it is fine for a founder to be a big part of the business publicly. But when it comes to selling the business, just be aware that a buyer will want a good exit plan from you. How are you going to get out of the business? Sure. So yeah. if you have a podcast, for example, 
our common advice would be, hey, Lindsay, the podcast is always just you. It's great. We love the podcast. But why don't you bring in a co-host for some episodes? Then if you want to sell your business, people are used to hearing the co-host and hopefully also like the co-host will continue to listen. And that's an easy way to, to do it. So the world has definitely changed as social media has become more important. There's also just a lot more companies out there, particularly yeah. in the SaaS space. Differentiating yourself with a like a personal brand is a pretty good way of doing it, I think. So without yeah. that, I think you can spend all your time. I think sometimes people obsess too much over exit planning and they don't really think enough about what's the best way to build your business. And often the best way to build your business is building a brand around yourself. Yeah, we agree. Blast Media is a peer agency for SaaS companies. And when we work with mostly growth stage companies up through publicly traded, and they typically have you know, established thought leadership for their C-suite, but for these scaling brands is, and we know that their path is exit through either IPO or, or acquisition, is we really put a big emphasis on increasing the visibility of specifically their CEO or founder. We leverage a lot of other spokespeople, but I believe if you're looking really for who's the best fit, who really believes in your brands, and that's trying how you're whittling down those buyers, it's important to understand if they vibe with the culture and the philosophy of the company as, as it exists today, which is oftentimes developed by the CEO or founder. So tend to agree in that arena. You did say one of the biggest mistakes that companies looking to sell make is not elevating that person. What are some other mistakes that you see if I'm looking to exit through acquisition, where do you see missteps? So I think a similar point is also people hear that companies get sold on a multiple of earnings and you would find a hundred different people who tell you a hundred different ways to value a business, but ultimately almost all of them rely on some form of earnings multiple. It's the most reliable way to value a business. That's what the majority of buyers will look at. What some people do is they think they're coming up to a sale, maybe they want to sell in six months or 12 months. So they use that as an opportunity to cut expenses. But the spirit of reducing expenses is to be optimal. What some people do is they just remove essential things. So they'll say, okay, well, I just fired my whole development team, but it doesn't matter because we're not developing any new features at the moment. And that, that might be fine for three months or six months, but the reality is in almost any SaaS or software company, if you're not continuously developing your software, you're going to fall behind. There'll be someone new that comes along and they will just beat you for product. So you might get away with it three to six months. Your PL might look better for a few months, but medium term, that's not going to work well. Exactly the same for things like support, marketing expenses, all sorts of different things I see people cut. So when people hear, or when you hear that a business sold on a multiple of earnings, the thing to do is focus on expenses that you shouldn't be paying for or unnecessary expenses, not necessarily fire half your team because it reduces your payroll cost by 50%. Sure. Some companies are paying people that are not necessarily needed. So in that case, as a CEO, your job is to make a difficult decision, which is maybe they're not needed, but just cutting out all expenses. Buyers, experienced buyers are well aware that if you've let go your entire development team, they're probably going to need to pay for development on an ongoing basis. Right. And they'll probably consider that not a distressed business, but a worse business. A lot of people, I guess the second part of that is a lot of people kind of just stop working on their business. They're like, well, I'm going to sell it anyway. So I'll just stop as maybe as the founder, they'll stop paying attention on marketing. They'll stop paying attention on product. 
they'll get a bit lazy on support tickets and then churn will increase. Anyone buying a business wants to buy a business on the upswing. Mm -hmm. So you need to be working to make sure that the business is performing well and you don't just take your foot off the gas and stop working on it. So probably like some of the most common things we see people do. Obviously, our job is to make sure that doesn't happen, but you'd be surprised how many people hear sound bites or like they hear a few things or they read something on Twitter or LinkedIn and they think, oh, wow, I need to cut expenses. Uh, and they cut all the wrong things. Well, they cut the things that got them there, right? This yeah, stuff it, that, that helps exactly. build the brand to where it is. And there's, to your point, a difference between cutting maybe a few key positions or maybe it's, you know, you have some overlap, but completely cutting departments or cutting budgets in half. I don't know if you saw, but TechCrunch, I think it was two weeks ago, um, came out with an article that basically said, shocking, that SaaS companies who had listened to their VCs and cut their revenue generating teams and budget, so sales and marketing, didn't were no more profitable than companies who didn't by the end of this year. And it's like, you know, all of us, especially as marketers, we're like, yes, yes, exactly. But all is very clear to us, but unfortunately that happens a lot. On the flip side, what are some of the biggest missteps that you see buyers make in the process? Has there Are there things that happen that literally just shut deals down? Yeah, there's lots of things that buyers do wrong. I would say if you're there's two different types of buyers, experienced buyers. So let's be call it keep it simple. Someone who's bought a business before, inexperienced buyers, never bought a business before, wants to buy some or wants to buy one or multiple. Those could be individuals, those could be large companies that want MA to be part of their strategy going forward and everything in between. The most common mistake we see is just analysis paralysis. So they'll spend many years. You shouldn't buy the first company you look at, but you also, if you've looked at 500 and don't like any of them, you're probably being too fussy. So what most people do, going back to my earlier point around the kind of checklist of 10 things a business has about it, most buyers, particularly if they do a course or maybe they do an MBA or something like that, they'll come out with a list of 10 things I want in a business. Has to be profitable, growing 100% year on year, churn below 1%, team will remote, founder staying with the business. So I come up with a checklist of 10 things, which on paper are like, is the perfect business. And then they'll want to pay, I don't know, below market multiple. And the reality is they'll spend forever looking for that business. If they ever do find it, they're not going to be anywhere near competitive on valuation because they don't want to pay enough for it. And if a business doesn't check all their boxes, they just say no. So some people just get stuck in this kind of perpetual loop of looking at lots of businesses never making a decision. The way I look at it when I'm building my own portfolio is I'm not necessarily saying you should overpay for a business. If you find a business you like and you slightly overpay for it, or you pay more than you wanted to pay, but you buy it today, or you wait an entire year with that money just sat in the bank and buy a business below market value, by the time you've owned that first business for a year, you probably made more than enough money to offset what you overpaid by in the first place or what you paid more than you were willing to pay. Um, so the most successful buyers, and this is experienced buyers or not, are just decisive. Sure. They will be a little bit flexible in their criteria. They will understand, like maybe the business checks all their boxes, but then marketing's not very good and still sales have been a bit stagnant. So maybe they should just put aside some budget to call a marketing agency when they buy the business. And that's what they should do rather than just moving on and saying, oh, I don't like this business. So a lot of buyers just spend forever and they get way too fussy on criteria and they never really ever make a decision. 
more experienced buyers at any stage a buyer is well within their rights to walk away from a deal but i say sometimes experienced buyers will try and retrade or renegotiate a deal because of something that was like slightly misunderstood or a slight differentiation in what the seller said up front and what turns out at the end of due diligence the most successful buyers we work with who acquire multi-million multi-billion dollar portfolios generally have a policy of not retrading so once they go through due diligence does everything look essentially what they thought up front if yes buy the business for the terms you originally said not oh i'm going to take 100,000 or depending on the size of the deal sure. 100,000 or a million dollars off the cash we're paying you for the business because of this one discrepancy to your point earlier about alignment with the founder and the culture if you do that to a founder at the last minute when the deal is going to close yes the deal might still close but you've not necessarily burnt a bridge but you've burnt a lot of goodwill Absolutely. so if you the way i look at it is if you call that founder at 10 p.m on a sunday because there's a problem and they're not contractually obligated to pick up the phone at that time and you screwed them over last minute they're not going to work with you and they're not going to pick up the phone right but if you've done the right thing by them and you've kind of stuck to your original terms, then they're way more likely to help. No, that makes sense. When have you seen marketing really make a difference in a deal getting done or not? So I think marketing always makes a difference because generally speaking, to your point, I, I didn't read that article in TechCrunch, but businesses that do best consistently invest in marketing. And anyone that does marketing on a consistent basis knows that, I don't know if there's a percentage, but... 80% of things you try will not work. They will not generate ROI. It's the 20% of things that, that will. So where sometimes companies companies will say, oh, I tried paid marketing. It didn't, didn't work. So they just stopped doing it. Or I, I tried Facebook. Facebook didn't work. So I'm not going to try Twitter. I'm not going to try LinkedIn. I made one video once. No one watched it. I know I launched the podcast, did one episode and 27 people downloaded it and it was basically just like my wife and my mom who downloaded it. So I think a lot of people do that and they like give up too early or they don't really see it through to see the full extent of ROI. The best businesses we see are consistently investing in marketing. It's the only real way you can grow your business on a predictable basis. No one wants to buy a business where you don't really know why it's growing. I think one of the best things about marketing or like using an agency or having a good marketing team is you can figure out what's driving the growth. So it may well be that 50% of your growth, and this is the same with most, most established companies comes from word of mouth. If you have an established business, word of mouth is probably going to be one of the biggest drivers of new clients. But if you are actively working on marketing, you should be able to figure that out. A lot of people just say, oh, I don't really know where do your clients come from. Word of mouth doesn't really tell you anything. But almost all businesses we represent of any size that sell are always doing marketing consistently and they stick to it. I'd say if you're not doing any marketing, then not that your business is difficult to sell, but someone would much rather buy a business where the owner or the founders have been consistently thinking about it and investing. And that doesn't really matter what it is. It could be paid marketing, social media, launch podcast. There's hundreds and hundreds of things you can do, but if you never try anything or you give up too early, then that's not really a good sign from a buyer's perspective. Particularly if we're talking about finding a buyer who wants to buy your business and grow it, which is essentially anyone. If you can't prove that some of the marketing channels you're investing in at the moment work, then 
how could someone buy your business and have any reason to believe it will grow? But recently we sold a business and the owners were spending $50,000 a month on paid ads and it was profitable. I think they had a ROAS of say one to four. They were turning their 50,000 a month into 200,000. The person who came or the company that came in and acquired that part of their portfolio was a paid ads agency. They had a lot of capital behind them and their it sounds kind of stupid and simple, but their plan was literally just to increase budget and optimize sure. the ads. Sure. But if they were never doing that in the first place, that company might look at it and be like, oh, hey, yeah, we can try paid ads on this business, but we're just guessing if right. it's going to work because we don't really right. know. If you can prove you've done a little bit and it's worked quite well, some companies, to my earlier point around, what do people see potential in? That's the kind of thing you might look at and say, wow, well, I'm a PPC expert. I had a look at your campaigns. Here are th- some things you could be doing better. I'm going to buy the business and do that myself. Absolutely. What I am underlining there for the marketing leaders on the call that I'm paraphrasing, but Tom has said, marketing always matters. It never not matters. So keep fighting the good fight and fight for your budgets. I know we have a lot of marketing leaders listening who are marching into budget planning and are being handed a lot less money than they were last year and be expected to deliver the same results. So our hearts go out to you. Thomas, is there anything that we didn't cover that you want to make sure that we tackle today? I think, so just talking about marketing, I think the way to think about it from that perspective is just try, and this is why a lot of the clients we work with, even in this market, I think people are still a little bit conscious. I think just focus most on the channels you know are working. I think marketers really spend a little bit in 2023, a little bit less time experimenting, a little bit more time doubling down on channels they know that work. I know like we're, just before we jumped on this podcast, I was in the middle of a budget meeting as well. And that's exactly what we're discussing. Like, sure. was this channel good? Let's spend more on it. If it didn't work. Let's cut it back. And ultimately, those are going to be the good businesses in the long run that people want to buy. So if you're in a marketing team, you listen to podcasts or you're a marketing kind of founder or whatever, then always invest in marketing, even if it doesn't seem like it, it's worthwhile immediately. Totally agree. We are in one little sliver of marketing. We're on the brand side. We're in PR. That's all that we do is brand perception, brand building, and especially too for those companies who, who see their competitors pull back. It is the absolute right time then to double down on the stuff that's working because your competitors are pulling back. Thomas, this has been great. Thank you so much. As we end every episode, I always ask my guests if they have a favorite or signature toast to send us out. Oh, I actually don't. I would usually just say cheers. Easy enough. Cheers. Cheers. I will drink to that. Uh, We'll really appreciate the time, Thomas. This has been a great conversation and appreciate your wisdom. Yeah, thanks. Thanks again to Thomas for joining me on SAS Half Full. Really great perspective to share. That wraps up our interview for today. Hope you all learned a thing or two. And until next time, bottoms up.